Well, good morning. I don't like that. You guys are awake. <laughs> you had an extra hour of sleep. Um, I'm Mike Rohr, and I'm one of the deacons here at Parkway. I am not Dan Deckard. If any of you opened the paper on Saturday morning and looked in that section where it shows all the churches and the, the worship times and maybe what the, uh, the passages are going to be preaching on, it said that Dan Deckard was preaching this morning. So this is not a bait and switch. That's not the intent. <laughs> Dan's enjoying some vacation time with his family and uh, well-deserved. So he offered me the chance to speak this morning. Before I do that, let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would be strong in our midst this morning. Open up our hearts. Fill us with your understanding uh, that people can take in, make room for more things in their understanding of who you are and who they're to be in you. And help me to preach clearly and boldly the word that you've given to me. I ask this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> now, unless you were born and raised here in uh, Parkway Community Church, you've most likely found yourself in the position of looking for a church. And that can be an intimidating task. And maybe there's someone here this morning who's here for that very reason. Any hands? No. No. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand. <laughs> that would not be cool. Um, But people find themselves in that position for a variety of reasons. It could be they were regular attenders at a church, but for one or more reasons, felt they needed to look for a different place to worship. These people are usually looking for something different than what they had at their previous church. Um, There are others who are in a church that they absolutely loved, but maybe they had to move. And now they're looking for a church that's somewhat similar to what they had previously. And when it comes to evaluating a church, there are so many different things that could be examined. For some people, size is important. Some people just don't feel comfortable outside the confines of a nice small church, say 100 people or less. Others are looking for a medium-sized church, like Parkway. They like the variety of programs that a church this size can offer. This is kind of a Goldilocks church, you know, not too small, not too big, just right in the middle. Now, my son is interning this summer at a church in Southern California called Saddleback Church. The place is enormous. There are thousands of people who worship there. Probably right now, there's thousands of people there. They actually call it a mega church. They have a lot to offer, obviously, because of their size. They have a nationally known pastor, but something that big is not everyone's cup of tea. So size, that's one factor that people could examine. Another might be your denominational preference. Are you looking for a Catholic church or a Protestant church? And if it's on the Protestant side, is it a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Lutheran church or a church of Christ or a church of God in Christ or a four-square gospel church? I mean, the list could go on and on, right? Or maybe you're looking for an independent church, one that doesn't have a denominational affiliation. Um, would you characterize the church you're looking for as reformed or maybe evangelical or even maybe Pentecostal or charismatic? Is the worship at the church you're looking for, is it traditional or contemporary? Or maybe they offer both. Maybe they have a contemporary service and then a traditional service so that they serve the needs of all the people in their church. Is it high-tech or low-tech? Is the worship liturgical like a Catholic or an Episcopal service? How long does the worship last? Don't laugh. For some people, that's at the top of the list. 
And then depending on the age and the makeup of your family, what's the youth group like? Is there a good children's program? What's the Sunday school program like? Is there a young adult ministry or a singles ministry or a seniors ministry? Is there a ministry for people who are hearing impaired? How often do you serve communion? Do you have a midweek service? Are there small group Bible studies? So many different things to look at. Of course, people want to evaluate what a church's core set of beliefs are. They want to examine their statement of faith. At Parkway, it's on our website. It's listed as what we believe. You want to feel like your understanding of biblical doctrine aligns with what the church believes and teaches. You may also want to look at the leadership in the church. Do they have teaching pastors who are women? Is there a board of elders? Or is the church run by a senior pastor where he's sort of a pastor slash CEO? Is the church congregational where everyone joins in on making all the decisions? Lots of different things you can evaluate. I thought, well, rather than be be theoretical in this, I'm going to do a little web search. And I found uh, a a thread, a conversation that was uh, started with this person's question. Their question was, when deciding what church you want to attend regularly, what kind of things do you look for? So it's the kind of things we've been talking about here. So these are real responses here. What I look for in a church is friendly people. Even if they don't talk to me, I want to feel like I've been going there my whole life. I also want to feel God in the room. In some of the bigger, fancier, showier churches that I've been to, I found it hard to feel God. I like smaller churches because I can feel it more. Another person responds, when looking for a church, I make sure the area is good and the congregation are welcoming. A church that will move me and not bore me. The church must be near, like three miles away, unless it's really good. This person responds, when looking for a church, I would pray, asking God where he wants you to go. With him leading you, you can't go wrong. I would look for a friendly congregation and staff. Most importantly, I would look for a church that studies, teaches, and follows the Bible. I'm going to skip this one and come back to it last. This person responds, I love small churches. It just feels more like home to me. Most of the ones I've been to happen to be predominantly black, and I find that the preacher is always fiery when delivering the word. Probably true. I don't like when large churches water down the word. This person responds very simply, I don't really look for anything. Instead, I search for a feeling of home. Now, back to the one that I went over. It's a little bit longer than the others, but I think it bears listening to. This person responds, in looking for a church, I say, hold up, wait a minute. The church I attend should not be based on what kind of music I like or how people are dressed or whether or not they serve coffee after the service. The biggest question is, do they have their focus right? But the real test is this. How are they visibly showing their obedience to God? Are they keeping their focus on living out his commands or do they only seek to provide a nice place to visit and bring friends because they serve donuts and play movies on the weekends? It's not a problem if a church wants to serve donuts, but if a church is focused on drawing people in and being culturally relevant, and this person puts culturally relevant in quotes, so it 
stands out, it oftentimes waters down the power of the gospel of Christ in its attempt to make everybody feel good. I don't pick a church based on whether or not we agree on every little picky doctrinal point. What does I say? Picky, the fundamentals we must agree on. A community of Christians should be chosen based on their devotion to obedience and obedience to Christ. Now, there should be care of the poor in the area, an active prayer and discipleship ministry, a willingness to give our resources so others can share in our wealth, a loving, forgiving, and merciful people. No church is perfect, I know that, but the key is, are they actively working to improve by serving God? Do they work through conflict in a merciful, loving manner? Do they take seriously the commands of Christ? Those are the biggest criteria in choosing a church. So, great responses. Now, in all those ways that I mentioned of evaluating churches, and we only scratch the surface, they don't really get to the heart of what makes a church truly a strong church. Is the strength of a church measured in the excellence of its youth programs or its preaching? Is it found in how well the music and singing is delivered? The only response I read that really got to the heart of the matter is the one I read last. In fact, I think he may have read Paul's letter to the Philippians. The Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul gives us a succinct set of encouragement and commands for a church that's undergoing some persecution. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 27. I'll give you my trick for finding Philippians. You got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you got Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And then there's those four books. Which order do they go in? Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So while you're eating popcorn, let me give you a little background on Paul's association with the Philippian church. If you're not familiar with Paul, he was this incredible missionary, traveled all over the Middle East and Europe to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece, was the first place in Europe where the gospel was preached. When Paul arrived there, because there was no Jewish temple, he went down to the river, expecting that that's where the Jews would gather during the daytime. He met a group of women, one of whom was named Lydia. Engaged her in conversation, opened up the gospel to her, explained who Jesus Christ was and what he had done for her, and she believed. She became the first new Christian on European soil. She opened up her home for the new Philippian Christians to use as a place to meet. So this became their church building of sorts and set the tone for the kind of generosity that this small church would become known for. They supported Paul while he was there in Philippi ministering and also when he was out in the neighboring communities preaching and ministering to those people. On one of Paul's trips through Greece, he took up a collection from the churches there to support the poor in Jerusalem. They had this large church in Jerusalem many of whom were just destitute. So the people in in Greece gave this offering, and the Philippians were just incredibly generous in their offering. He probably visited Philippi three times during his missionary travels, and the occasion of this letter to the Philippian church was to thank them for how they supported him while he was imprisoned in Rome. In fact, he's writing this letter to them while he's sitting in a Roman prison. One of the people from the the church in Philippi, a guy named Epaphroditus, was sent to Rome with gifts for Paul, uh, money and things that he needed, 
prisons back then weren't like they are today. Uh, if you didn't have support, you probably didn't get by very well. And part of the gift was Epaphroditus himself. He was supposed to stay there and minister to Paul. But while he was there, he got so ill, so sick, that he almost got to the point of death. So as soon as he got well enough to travel, Paul sent him back to Philippi with this letter. So this is a church that Paul had a a deep and abiding love for. When you read the book of Philippians, you can see that sentiment just dripping off the pages. He really loved these people. So now not only is he thanking them, but he's encouraging them in the suffering and persecution that they're going through. And he actually was part of the catalyst that started this persecution. On one of his trips there, uh, there was a girl that worked for, she's probably a slave, didn't work willingly for these people. And she would go around and uh, she would tell people's futures. She could divine their futures. Well, Paul recognized that there was a spirit in her, an evil spirit, and he cast out this demon. Well, praise God. Now this girl is a normal, healthy, young girl, and she can go around her. But this guy lost his livelihood. He doesn't have this little fortune teller anymore. So the persecution began from that point. The Christians did that. And anybody who identified themselves as a Philippian Christian just started getting more and more pressure and more and more persecution from the people in the town. So the instruction, the encouragement, the commands that Paul gives to the Philippian church in the passage we're going to look at is intended to strengthen them for the task of standing firm against this persecution and this opposition that they're facing. So now let's, uh, let's look here. It's up on the board. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look up here on the screen. Beginning with verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Where it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, when he's writing this letter to this church, there's sort of this dual perspective that you need to look at. When we read the Bible, we read it from the perspective that we want to take something out from that that we can apply as individuals to ourselves, right? Well, there's that, there's that aspect, and that's something that we should be doing when we read. But when we read a letter like this, it was written to a church, there's a collective aspect of it as well. He was writing collectively to the church. So you see a lot of plurals, a lot of inclusive words in there. Kind of keep your eye open for those so you can see, is he writing to a person? Is he writing to a church? A lot of this is collectively to the church themselves because he's trying to strengthen them against this 
this persecution. So a little bit of a spoiler alert. Paul's going to lay some strong expectations on the Philippian church, almost to the point where you might say, this is too much to expect these people to accomplish. However, he's not going to leave them hanging, trying to figure out how anyone can live in that manner. He gives them a clear picture and a model to go by. The first thing he tells them is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that's a that's a pretty heavy command right there off the, off the bat. The Greek word that's translated as let your manner of life, or some versions say conduct yourself in a manner, can also be referred to or, or used to refer to citizenship. Now, citizenship in Philippi, that was a huge deal. Because it was politically expedient or advantageous, Caesar Augustus declared Philippi a Roman colony. Now, it's way out in the outskirts. It's out in Greece, a long way from Italy and Rome itself. But he declared that a Roman colony, and the citizens of Philippi had all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens. So when they hear citizen or citizenship, their ears perk up because that's a real strong, that's a lot of value to them. So what he's telling them is, he's reminding them, he's, he's told them already, he's reminding them, You're not just citizens of Philippi. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. And you need to conduct yourselves in that manner. Don't just live like a good Philippian. You have a special calling, according to the gospel of Christ, to represent the gospel, not just with your words, but with your lives. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He goes on to add that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're engaged in a few things we're going to look at in a minute here. But remember, Paul's in prison, and he's hopeful that he'll be released, which gives us that aspect of whether I come and see you. Uh, But he also recognizes he may not. So that's why he said, whether I'm absent. The point is he's making is in either circumstance, whether he comes and sees them or whether he only hears about it, He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by their opponents. When I first read through that, standing firm in one spirit, I immediately thought, well, that's the Holy Spirit. He's empowering them. But after a little bit of study and looking at the rest of the the context itself, You look at the other descriptors, standing firm, side by side, striving, and not frightened by their opponents. You see this picture of this immovable, inviolable force for Christ in Philippi. Especially, take into consideration that the word for mind, it's not just they they have the same mindset or they think alike. This word is deeper. It's like their soul. Their lives are joined together. They don't just think in the same manner. They're connected by their souls. So you get this, this, this picture of this church being unified in heart and mind, unafraid and standing firm. When, when, when they hear all this, it's almost as though when this letter's being read to them, you, you almost expect to hear a chorus of onward Christian soldiers start playing in the background. Um, 
Paul's not giving these guys just a little chuck on the shoulder and saying, hang in there. He's preparing this church for battle. And the battle is for the faith of the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Everything that they're contend- contending for is because of and for the gospel of Christ. So after preparing that exhortation, he tells them that Christ has given them a gift, the gift of suffering. Now that may sound like a cruel joke, but in fact, it's a normal part of the Christian life and one that constantly confounds us. We're so unprepared for suffering and we so often regard it as an unwanted, unwelcome part of our lives. R.C. Sproul wrote a book, in fact, he called it Surprised by Suffering. Because we are. That's who we are. That's how, that's how we approach it. When you consider what God has revealed to us, it should not be a surprise, and we should not consider it unwelcome. <clears throat> you don't have to turn here, but John sixteen thirty three. Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before he's crucified. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Not you might. You may, it, some of you may a little have a little trouble. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In James, in his opening um, paragraph, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various tri- trials of various kinds. It shouldn't be a surprise, and we shouldn't see it as unwelcome. You know, one of the things that I, I, I love, I don't preach that often, which I'm sure you guys were glad of, but when I do, when I do study and research, and, I, and I, I teach a small group, so I'm doing this a lot, you get these little nuggets of truth that come your way. It's, it, it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. I, I like technology. I, I read blogs. I use computers a lot. I use Twitter. So I get these tweets. I got one from John Piper this, this past week. Not because John and I are tight. You can follow John Piper. You get the same, you get the same messages. He said, just this week, as I'm, as I'm researching this topic, he sends out this message. God has given you two gifts, faith and suffering. Don't waste them. <clears throat> Another one I got this week, um, the uh, C.S. Lewis Foundation will send you all kinds of quotes from C.S. Lewis. And the one that I got this week said, Stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's real life. They are precisely one's real life. So you get this aspect that we should not be, we shouldn't consider it unwelcome. In fact, he says, you're granted this from Christ. It's a gift that you get to suffer for him. There was a really, very interesting news story that came out this week. It immediately got overshadowed by the, the horrific tragedy in that theater Aurora, Colorado. But the story I'm referring to <clears throat> was um, the affirmation of the biblical definition of the family unit that Dan Cathy gave. He's the president of Chick-fil-A. He wasn't, tr- he wasn't trying to make a statement. I don't know. You know I, 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 don't, I, I won't presuppose to understand what his mindset was. He was simply saying, this is what I believe. I'm a Christian man. We run our company on Christian principles, and we affirm the biblical definition. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to tear anything down. He was trying to uphold this standard. 
the biblical definition of a family unit. Well, as soon as it hit the press, Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A are just vilified. They're referred to as homophobes, uh, hate mongers, thousands of people. Maybe by this time, this is days ago when I first read it, there may be 10,000 of, pe- of people who have signed a petition to boycott his restaurants. The mayor of Boston went as far as to say he doesn't want any Chick-fil-A restaurants anywhere in Boston. The interesting thing, though, is I don't think Dan Cathy was surprised by this. He's a smart man. He runs a big business. He had to know when he made that statement, it wasn't going to stay in the confines of that room or on this one little website where it's going to get published. Anything on the web is fair game. And something like that, it's going to go like wildfire. And there was a firestorm that ensued. I don't think it surprised him. I think he factored in the financial impact that it might have on his restaurant. What Dan Cathy did was he stepped back in time and he joined the Philippian church. He stood firm. And to him, it was granted that for the sake of Christ, that he would not only believe, but he'd suffer for his sake. He knew all that walking in. He said, yeah, I'll do that. Times haven't changed much. So when you have the opportunity, and we all do at times, we get confronted. Sometimes small little instances of standing firm, sometimes more, you know, more like what Dan Cathy did. How will you respond? Will you stand firm? Will you accept that gift of suffering, large or small, that's going to come your way? It is a gift. Now, chapter 2 begins with, <clears throat> so, when you see a word like that, therefore or so, you're thinking you need to look back because it's referring to something that you already read. If you started with chapter 2, you need to look back and see what's that referring to. Oh, it's what we just covered. So he's like, having said that, now, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul had just put this big load of responsibility of standing firm, contending for the gospel, not being afraid. He put this all in the Philippian church, and now it's the time to encourage them and inspire them. All four of these concepts in verse 1 remind the church that they're not alone in this fight, that they will mutually encourage and care for one another. The word is translated as encouragement. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, it's actually the word, the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit as a comforter who comes alongside. So this picture that he's conveying is when you get beat up, In the heat of battle, remember, Jesus will give you that comfort. He'll come alongside you. So that's the first thing he's telling them. The next is this comfort from love. And even though it sounds like the same word as the way that the first one was interpreted, a comforter who comes alongside, this comfort really is more, it more conveys a spoken comfort. This is the idea that this church will mutually 
comfort and encourage one another. It, 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 it implies involvement in each other's lives. You can't comfort, you can't speak comfort to somebody that you're not in close contact with. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next is participation in the Spirit. And this participation is a word that may be familiar to a lot of us. It's the, it's the word for fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. And this participation, it, it implies that you are involved. Again, like I described earlier, that you're in, they're involved in each other's lives. Verses 3 and 4, uh, excuse me, uh, affection and sympathy. That kind of stands by itself. We understand what those mean. Now, verses 3 and 4 stand out in contrast, though. He's not applying this soothing balm any longer. Now what he's telling them is he's encouraging them to exhibit this extraordinary humility. He tells them that they should count the needs of others as more significant than their own needs. And this is a church that is undergoing real persecution, real hardships, and there are people who have real needs. Now he's telling these people who are hurting to not regard your needs as important as the needs of those around you. How do you do that? You know? So Paul's given us this picture of this church in Philippi, standing firm with one soul, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, unafraid of those who are persecuting. And then he shows them loving and comforting and encouraging each other through the battle so they don't lose heart. And at last, we see the picture of humility among them so there's no me or mine, but only what is best for the considered needs of everyone. It's an incredible picture of unity in the church that mirrors the kind of unity that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now he's going to tell them how it's possible to achieve all this. So this has got to be overwhelming. These aren't superhumans. They're people just like us. And you're probably sitting back going, oh, yeah, I do that every day, right? How do you do that? How do you live this out in your lives? Starting with the verse 5 of chapter 2, he points them to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back in, um, in verse 27, where we first started, Paul introduced this idea of acting in one mind. He repeated it again twice in verse 2, being of one mind. Now he's going to reveal what that mind is and how they can achieve it. It's the mind of Christ, and it's exhibited in three magnificent acts. The first is humility. In verse 6, Jesus displays ultimate humility. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to tightly. On the surface, 
it may not seem like Jesus' act of becoming man cost him very much. If you know anything about the theological aspect of it, Jesus is divine. He is fully God. And then he takes on humanity. And in that act, he becomes fully man. He doesn't, he's, he's no, lo, no less God than he was before, but now he's fully man. I know, it doesn't work. Our minds are just too tiny, and our reasoning abilities just won't accept that as a logical thing. We just have to accept it as truth. So when you see it like that, he's still fully God, and now he has this other aspect of being fully man. Well, what does it really cost him? How is that really humility? Think about it. Imagine the almighty God of the universe, the creator of all that exists. Now he has to take in food or he'll starve. He has to drink water or he'll die of thirst. Just like us, at the end of the day, he's tired. His body's tired and it needs rest. He needs to sleep. He feels pain, physical pain. In his divine essence, he is limitless, but now he's bound in the confines of a frail human body. This is the most powerful act of humility that ever had been displayed. Nobody else could do anything on this par. Nobody else had as much to give up. Nobody else could humble himself this much, to this degree. So that's the example of humility that he shows, that Paul shows to the Philippian church. The second is servanthood. In verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a bondservant. A bondservant is one who's pledged or bound to serve someone else. In this case, Jesus is the bondservant of God the Father. It's not explicitly stated But think about it. Who else in the entire universe can Jesus serve? There is nobody else that he could look up to as his master other than God the Father. Certainly not me or anybody sitting in here. He is the bondservant of the Father. And the following verses substantiate this. In Matthew 26, 39, The night before Jesus is crucified, he says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Totally subservient to the will of the Father. <clears throat> and then in John ten eighteen, in talking about his own life, he says, No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to pick it back up again. So it sounds like he's in complete authority of his own life. Then he goes on to say, this charge I have received from the Father. Even, Even the mastery of his own life is in the hands of the Father. So we have humility. We have servanthood. The last is obedience. In verse 8, Jesus demonstrates obedience in the most extreme manner. He became obedient even to the point of death and death on the cross. The worst possible way you could die back then. This was the kind of model of obedience that the Philippian church needed to see. Even if those people in that church had to be obedient to the point of death, 
they could see ultimate victory. The same people who caused their death would be the same people who someday would bow their knee and declare Jesus Christ as Lord of all. So this is what makes the church strong. People acting in humility, looking out for the interests of others, serving faithfully, displaying obedience in all they do. It's not. This church is blessed with wonderful leaders who teach us and guide us. That's not the strength of this church. We're blessed with a great youth program to disciple and build up the spiritual lives of our young people. It's not the strength of this church. We're blessed with a great music ministry. You guys have enjoyed worship this morning, singing. We have gifted musicians and singers. None of those are the strength of this church. The strength of this church, I'm looking at it. It's you. Acting in humility, being a servant, and being obedient. That's what makes this church, or any church, strong. That's what will keep this church vibrant for another 40 years.